This is Stacy Eldridge. Welcome to Captivated. This world vies for our attention in a thousand different ways. But the most important thing, the preeminent thing, the essential thing, is to give our attention to Jesus. Welcome, friends. Stacy here, and I am so happy to be with you today, wherever you are and however you are. You know what I'd like to do first is pray for our time together for this podcast, because we're here to shift our gaze onto our glorious King, and we need His help to do that. So, King of all, King of kings, Lord of lords, our Jesus, we consecrate this podcast to you for your glory and for your kingdom. As my friends listen, wherever they're at, I pray that you would pull back the curtain and reveal Jesus, reveal your love for them more deeply. You can do that endlessly. So we ask that with faith and with hope in the name of Jesus, in your name. Amen. Yay! So today, to shift our gaze to Jesus, we're going to look at the book of Ruth. But we're going to look at it from someone else's view than one we're used to. We're going to look at it from Naomi's. Remember Naomi, the mother-in-law in the book of Ruth? What are some words that you would use to describe her? Because for me, when I first think of her, I think of words like grumpy, um, hopeless, desperate, but primarily grumpy. And let's just go back and look at it again and see if we can see her more clearly. You remember the story in the book of Ruth, Naomi, her husband, Elimelech, and their two sons left their home as famine refugees. So I want, I want to set the stage for that and just have you really picture it. Refugees, hungry, packing up everything, carrying what they can, leaving the country they love. Picture videos of, of, of other refugees that you've seen recently, risking it all maybe in a flimsy boat. Picture the desperation. This is them. Elimelech and his family had to leave. And it wasn't just their family who went. Many, many needed to leave in search of a better life, in search of food. And where did they go? They went to Moab, present-day Jordan. Moab was Israel's ancient enemy. So how happy do you think the Moabites were for them all to come? So just to set the stage, what it felt like, the desperation. And then while there, and you know they were there for quite a while, Naomi's husband died. Too many of you know the grief of that. Some of you, you have known that. And many of you have walked alongside women who have suffered that. Widows at this time in history were at the very bottom of the social ladder. Naomi was close to the bottom, but she wasn't there yet because she still had her two sons. And her two sons married Moabite women. These were worshipers of Chomash. Chomash was described later as a detestable god. Ruth 
is a Jewish woman, a daughter of Abraham, a daughter of the promise. And no Israelite woman envisions her sons marrying foreign women. And she had plenty of stories to fear their influence. So how would that be? This is not the way she imagined her life to unfold. But she still has the covering of her sons. Until she doesn't. They both die and without children of their own. Within the context of this ancient patriarchal society, the day they buried Malon and Kilion, they basically buried Naomi as well. We cannot minimize Naomi's pain and her suffering. Know that apart from her grief, at this time in history, the position of a widow without sons to care for her was at best a precarious one. She had no legal rights and no voice. The rights we naturally assume did not exist for her or for her daughter-in-laws. Count Naomi's worth, count her son's. So Naomi's losses are catastrophic. Once the men were removed from the story of her life, her life had no story. Her future was frightening, one of poverty, of vulnerability, and misery. That's what she had to look forward to. So what if instead of looking at Naomi as a a self-centered complainer, We look at Naomi, as Carolyn Custis James points out in her book called Finding God in the Margins, we look at Naomi as a feminine Job, a woman for whom all things have been lost and stripped away. Yes, she is miserable. Yes, she complains. And like Job, and often us, She draws a direct correlation between what she has suffered and the God she worships. Stories like hers and stories like Job, they open the door for us to be honest with God about our lament. Remember that in the Psalms, there are more Psalms about lament than any other kind. We are invited to be honest about our sorrow, about our our weariness, about our overwhelmed God already knows what we're thinking, and he knows what we're feeling, and we can't have a real relationship with him if honesty doesn't lie at the center. Dear ones, we do not need to pretend with him. He will never turn his face away. Naomi is a childless widow. She has lost to her everything, but worst of all, For Naomi, she felt that she had lost Yahweh's love, named here as Hesed, H-E-S-E-D. In Ruth 1.13, Naomi says, For the Lord's hand has turned against me. Hesed. What is Hesed? Hesed is going above and beyond what could rightfully be expected. Is actually one of the key theological concepts in the story of Ruth. One commentary says that the Bible has a favorite word 
that describes a special characteristic of God and of people who are faithful to him. It's the term hesed. Hesed is difficult to translate because it stands for a cluster of ideas. It wraps up in itself all the positive attributes of God. No single word in English captures its meaning. Translators use words like faithfulness, kindness, loving kindness, mercy, loyalty. Perhaps loyal love is close. Let's go with that. But keep in mind, it is a totality of God's highest and best characteristics. It's sometimes used of people, and we need it from people, but primarily it is used of God. Hesed is one of the richest, most powerful words in the Old Testament. It always reflects the loyal love that God has for his people. Hesed is displayed throughout the story of Ruth, where it is usually translated as kindness. Know that it is something that we unconditionally receive. It is not something that we earn. Back to Naomi. Not only is Naomi left without a husband or sons, but so are her daughter-in-laws, who, by the way, were married for 10 years and had no children, so they were considered barren themselves. They are vulnerable. They are actually invaluable in the world they were living in. They had no covering, and remember, they had no legal recourse if they were taken advantage of. In Ruth 1.6, it says that Naomi learned that Yahweh had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them. So she decides to return back home to the land of Judah, to Bethlehem. The three women set out on the road together, but not far into the journey, Naomi commands them to go back to your mother's home. And she says, may the Lord show you kindness there. Has said, as you have shown me. She's saying, because at least there you have a chance to marry again in your own country. God may give you rest there. Their chances for protection and rest are heightened back in Moab, and not what they can hope for in a land where they are poverty-stricken and foreign widows. Naomi told her daughter-in-laws to go. Why? Well, out of her concern for them. It's the first sacrificial act in the story. She knew that as widows and foreigners, suffering and danger awaited them. Orpah finally did go. That made sense. There's no condemnation for her choice. It was a wise choice. It was Ruth who did the extraordinary, and we will see her do it again and again in this book, but we see it for the first time here. She says, no. She is a widow herself with no sons. She's raised and living in a harsh patriarchal society under the authority of her mother-in-law. And she says, no. She's a woman who traditionally didn't have a voice. She lived her life without a choice, and she speaks up for herself and says, no. It is such an unexpected, strong, and bold thing. 
She displays has said to Naomi. She displays a loyal love. You know her famous verse. But Ruth replied, Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Wow. Why? Why did she say that? Why did she do that? What did she see in Naomi? What did she know about her, experience with her, that makes her so committed to her, so loyal? What has made her love her so much? What do you imagine Naomi was like as a mother-in-law, as a guide, a friend, a teacher, a follower of Yahweh? What has Naomi revealed about her God that even in this moment where Naomi is saying, Yahweh has forsaken me and rejected me, Ruth says, I choose your God, the one who says you has rejected you. What has Ruth seen and learned of the one true God in the 10 years that she's lived with Naomi? Her choice speaks volumes about Ruth, but it also speaks volumes about Naomi. What would make a woman like Ruth stay? Well, maybe maybe the family she left back in Moab was awful, and so she'd rather choose the life of a refugee, vulnerable to attack, an unprotected widow with no source of income or protection or home, and return to a famine-ravaged land that is just beginning to recover and have food again. Maybe it was so bad that even that looked good. Or maybe, and I believe, it was Naomi's character. It was her life. It was what she spoke and lived of God. It was the allure of light that she possessed even in the darkest of nights. It was the hesed, the loyal love, the kindness that Naomi had been offering Ruth for years. But Naomi's at the end of her rope here. She believes God has forsaken her. And when she looked at her life, she had good reason to. But she still believes in God. She drew a direct correlation to her circumstances and God's action and inaction. And because of that, she believed that this God of faithful love had stopped loving her. Now that's despair. Naomi was operating as a woman of faith at about 20% and openly wrestling with God. But Naomi's 20% was 100% of what Ruth needed. Even in Naomi's darkest places where her beliefs about God were tested and tried and warped under her pain, she did not question that he was indeed God. Though sometimes we have questions, don't we? You have pain. And I don't know the depth of what it is. Even if we could sit down across a table and you put words to it, I couldn't grasp the fullness of it. But Jesus can. Our Jesus who knows pain. Remember Jesus' pain. Abandoned. 
betrayed. He underwent torturous physical pain, emotional pain, spiritual pain. He was immobilized in pain. And while he was nailed to the cross and could not physically move, he moved heaven and earth. He knows, friends. He understands. I'd say today that I'm operating at about 75%. But maybe my 75% is 100% of what someone listening needs. Maybe your 50% is 100% of what your neighbor needs. Maybe your 25% is 100% of what that woman needs or that stranger needs, your friends need, your children need. But Stacy, you say, I'm struggling. Well, maybe your struggle is what they need to see. I'm a woman who is struggling in some ways, in the most obvious of ways when you see me with my weight, but deeper, sometimes with a weariness born out of decades of ministry and not quite knowing how to always tap into the resources of heaven I'm weary from living at a pace that the world applauds and that Jesus did not model. I'm not alone in that. But here I am, because maybe who you need to hear from is a woman who is on the road and held in the love of a mighty God. Maybe you need to hear from a failing woman who is clinging to a God who never fails. Maybe those around you need to see a person who doesn't have it all together, but knows the one who holds it all together. Maybe they need to see someone who falls down, but gets back up because their faith is not based on their abilities, but in their able God. Maybe people need to see imperfect people worshiping a perfect Jesus. Maybe what people need to see is your little match light shining in the darkness. Maybe by letting our little light shine, they will burst together into a powerful bonfire that lights the world on fire for Jesus. Maybe, maybe the point is not to get out of the struggle, but to exalt Jesus in it. Maybe by living honestly and authentically and openly in front of others, it will cause them to say, as Ruth did to Naomi, your God will be my God. Look, I don't know what you're facing now or have faced in the past, but I do know that in the dark of the night, the enemy has come to you and told you that God has removed his hesed from you. The enemy of your soul has whispered his lies when your heart is vulnerable, telling you that God is not faithful, that his character cannot be trusted, that he has abandoned you, that he doesn't care, that he's not good. The enemy is a liar. God is faithful and true. He is pure holiness, and he cannot contradict himself. He does not lie. He has promised that he will never leave you or forsake you. And that means that he will never leave you or forsake you. 
He also said that though you will suffer and suffering will mark you, Naomi would grieve the loss of her husband and sons till the end of her days. But God promises that he will work all things to good. It's a mystery, but he is the God of redemption. He's the God of the resurrection. He is the God of restoration, the God for whom nothing is impossible. He is the God who is the peace in the midst of our storm. He's the God who multiplies our loaves and fishes. He's the God who takes our 50%, our 20%, and turns it into 100%. He says, you have ravished me with your love when with your weakened gaze you lifted your eyes and glanced my direction. He is the God who invites you to come away with him for a while, to catch your breath. He's gentle. He wants you to rest, to find rhythms of rest in your daily life, to pour into you as you continue to pour out to drink of that which refreshes you. He uses music, beauty, the piercing goodness of his word to meet you. He uses others who walk alongside you on this road, who understand the trials you face and can say, you're doing good, meaningful work. They're there to help refresh and encourage you, to say, I see you. And Lord, for those listening that don't have a person like that, bring them into your life. Bring them into their life, I pray, and let them hear your voice speaking those words to them. God asks us. He invites us. He instructs us to lay down our cares and burdens at his feet, to release people to him, to practice what you've heard us call benevolent detachment, Simply to say, I give everyone and everything to you, God. It's a powerful prayer, one which I pray often, actually several times a day. It's saying, I care, but I no longer can carry. I can't carry it or them or this or that. Only you can do that, God. So I give everyone and everything to you. Friends, let them go. Let it all go. Only God is strong enough. Praying that will give you space for your soul to surface and breathe and find there the able God of creation waiting to refresh you in his love. At our ministry here at Wild at Heart, every day at 10 a.m. and 2 p.m., monastery bells sound. They interrupt our day, and they don't ring again for one minute. It's just one minute, but it's reorienting. When the bells go off, we silence ourselves. We stop our conversations. We breathe, and we pray. Right in this moment, I give everyone and everything to you, God. And we get specific. We say, I give whatever it is, this person, these people, this meeting, this project, this deadline, this hope, this major concern to you, that I might have you. So we're going to do it right now. 
It'll probably feel longer than a minute, but I promise it won't be. I'll say now, and then you do it in your heart. Breathe. Give everything and everyone to God. Be specific and be gentle with yourself and ask him to take it all and to come for you. Okay, we're going to do it now. Well done. Friends, God has not taken his eyes off you for one moment, and he is not shaking his head in despair. His eyes are full of mercy and compassion. He understands. Sometimes, no, actually often, we lose sight of the story we're living in. I know I do. We get lured into thinking that we're living in the garden or that we're supposed to be. We're not living in the garden. We're living in a world at war. The battle rages. Our life and our joy are opposed. You know that. You're living that. Still, there are such moments of beauty and connection, what I call golden moments, that we can get lured into thinking that life is only about beauty. We get lulled into believing that life is meant to always be fabulous. And okay, maybe it is, but we're not there yet. Somewhere deep inside, we sure wish it was fabulous all the time, that we were fabulous all the time. I know I do. We forget that all around us, at every moment of our lives, a battle is raging over us and for us. We were born into a world at war. It manifests itself in a variety of ways, but all of them come against our union with God. All of them steal our joy, or they sure try to. We're not to live in fear of the war, but we are to live with wisdom and awareness, armed and shielded in the power of God. The battle rages over the hearts and lives of all men and women, and yes, over our own hearts. Will we choose to believe God is good even in the midst of suffering? When we do, that's powerful. I know there are times when our faith wavers, but God hasn't. He is faithful. What do you need today? Where do you need him to come? 
Well, I know you need the spiritual refreshment that comes from knowing has said. You need to know God's loyal love right now, in this moment. Naomi lost sight of it when she lost her husband, lost her sons. When she lost them, she lost her hope. She returned to Bethlehem saying she was empty. She left full. She returned empty. Ruth doesn't count yet. She is not a protective covering. Naomi's name means pleasantness. When she returns to her native home, she changes her name to Mara, which means bitter. Call me Mara, she says, for my life is bitter. What's interesting is no one ever does. No one refers to her as Mara for the rest of the book. Her name remains Naomi. Do you know what your name means? What has God named you? Beloved, sought after, wanted, pursued, lovely, no matter what season you are living in, whether you are flourishing or striving, whether you are full or empty, your name has not changed, nor has your place in the heart of God. The book of Ruth tells of the glorious interplay of God's purposes and will with people's purposes and will. He is ultimately the hero of this story, as he is the hero of every story, including yours. And it begs the question, how might you be woven into God's plan of redemption? How might God be at work in the ordinary and mundane details of your life? How profoundly might your choices matter? But more, it asks you to consider, to remember, to ponder, and to embrace. How deeply does God's said run for you? You cannot measure it. In the book of Ruth, Naomi begins to recognize God's said again as she turns her eyes to consider that she still is his, has always been his. And you know how the book ends. Ruth gives birth to Obed, who will be the grandfather of King David. Naomi, her friend, sing, has a son. She had her deep times of trial and testing weariness and suffering, but God came. The God of all hope came, and her story ends with her hopes fulfilled. And so it will be for you. Take heart. So it will be for you, because he who promised is faithful. Jesus has come. He is coming now. And he will come again on a white steed with fire in his eyes and a flaming sword in his hand. And all your hopes will be fulfilled. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Father, I pray for all of the dear ones listening right now that even in this moment you would pull back the curtain and show them your said. Remind them 
of your faithfulness, your kindness, your loyal love. Remind them that you have never left them and you never will. Remind them who they are as the treasure of your heart, as the ones who have captivated you, as the ones for whom you have spent everything, done everything, won everything to win them for yourself. I pray this in the name of our Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Till next time, friends, God bless you. Hi, everyone. This is Stacy Burton, the producer of the Captivated Podcast. If you've been a regular listener, you've heard the encouraging teachings offered and the incredible conversations Stacy has had with her guests. So wherever you listen, be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. May you be filled with the goodness of his love today, and we look forward to having you join us next time. Thank you.